0: This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all.
1: My name is Al Shung. I'm at the Goldman School of Public Policy, where I work with a lab of students uh, working on this problem. Uh, and I think the core question we think about is sort of what is what is the climate worth? It's worth. Stepping back, really far back, I guess, you know, every day we we come into the office and ask whether or not we're allocating resources around the world in a way that sort of maximizes the opportunity for, for people everywhere. And this is a moment in time when we have really incredible technological progress, a huge amount of promise. We're able to build buildings that are almost a kilometer high, and we're able to land rockets autonomously, Iron Man style, on rafts floating out in the middle of the ocean but at the same time, there's millions of children that grow up with their bellies distended because they don't have access to proper sanitation. And there are several billion people around the world working as quickly as possible to sort of improve opportunities available to their families. And this amount of human activity puts a tremendous amount of stress on these global systems, as we know, so much so that you can see clearing of the Amazon from space And in fact, the the footprint of humanity is really so profound that if there were an alien astronomer who was looking at our atmosphere doing spectroscopy from very far away, that little dot there is our little blue planet, they would see the rise of humanity in their data. When we think about this problem, our job is to help decision-makers here at this moment in time consider what the world might look like as we travel down these different paths. What we do is we try to understand these futures and we use some of the more cutting-edge tools and sort of thinking about how we're going to govern this global problem. So if you take sort of the long arc of history, humankind has used a lot of innovations to better how we govern ourselves, whether it's this notion that all people should be considered equal or that we should write down our laws or that we should have the freedom of speech. Right now we're at a moment where computing and data-driven uh, analysis is really helping us design policies that are intelligent in a way and, and to plan forward in a way that we were never able to before. And so what I'm going to do is quickly walk you through just a few examples of how we're using data today to think about that question of what the future looks like. Many of you probably saw headlines like this, asking questions like how how populations rebuild after major climatic disasters like Typhoon Haiyan. Uh, My colleagues and I have been doing research on this problem for some time, and actually we built a model where we can simulate how these typhoons traverse the country of the Philippines And then we match this information about exposure to all the several hundred storms that have passed over the Philippines over the last several decades to detailed information about individual households and the kind of assets that they have. So what you see here, for example, is the probability that someone went to a family's house and they unexpectedly don't have strong walls to their house in relationship to whether or not there were – how the strength of winds – from typhoons that that family was exposed to the previous year. And so what you see is that in years when families were exposed to stronger winds, they also had a lower probability of having their walls. And you can actually repeat this sort of exercise for a variety of other assets, things like whether they have electricity or toilets or television. And we see that as families are exposed to more intense storms, there's less chance that they actually have the assets that they may have invested in the past. The only thing we don't see a reaction to is cars, But that kind of makes sense because, you know, people have like about six hours of warning before a storm hits. So they drive their car up to the top of a hill where it's safe. It's much harder to move your refrigerator uh, that quickly. But these kinds of losses have real impacts on the family's consumption. So on the right there, you see how much they reduce their spending after these storms on sort of critical inputs to family's health, on food, nutritious fruit and meat and eggs. These types of changes in spending patterns have real impacts on the family's well being. So, what we see here, you see this solid gray line. We see that the probability that infant females in these households die after these storms rises dramatically afterwards, in part due to the disinvestment in these sort of important factors, things like healthcare. Uh, and, and nutritious foods and we actually are able to trace out this mortality and understand when these children were born we see that right after a storm occurs there's a spike in infant mortality but more than half of these girls that die are dying so far in the future that they weren't even conceived at the time that the storm hit so it's through tracing out these types of pathways that we see that it's really the decline in the local economy that is leading to the hardship and causing this storm to sort of have information translate forward and impact uh, these children many like, several years down the road. When we do these calculations, it helps us think about the overall cost of what these storms are doing, to, uh, the overall cost of these storms. And on the left here, you see sort of historical estimates of what the economic burden or the human cost of these storms might have been. These are the numbers you might see in the newspaper. But by our calculations on the right, we actually see that the human toll and the economic toll is roughly 15 times larger than we previously thought. Now, this is not just a problem for the Philippines. There have been over 6,000 storms on the planet over the last several decades. And so what we do is we try to understand how different countries around the world are responding to these events as they occur, sort of out of our control. What we see is when we look at sort of the economic growth of countries, entire countries, as they get struck, they actually, the growth slows down and they decline after a storm strikes them, so much so that we can actually see the fingerprint of these storms in the macroeconomic trajectory of countries more than 20 years down the road after the storm occurs. What this research is doing is it's helping us realize that if you sort of compare these storms, so this is a graph the economists put together sort of talking about these results, you compare these, stor- these events to other types of things we talk about in the news all the time as major economic policies, whether it's tax increases, currency crises, and we see that the storms themselves actually have an economic impact on the same sort of order of magnitude. And so we ought to be thinking about these events as, as economic events. And the top line is sort of, if we compute for the world what these storms might cost, if we dial up climate change, it's on the order of about $10 trillion globally. So a question that's natural to ask is what, how populations respond to these sort of large economic crises caused by the climate. What you have here is looking back in time at a bunch of different civilizations around the world And the orange bars are periods of major social unrest and instability, whether you're looking at the collapse of the Maya on the top left, uh, the collapse of Angkor Wat on the right, or maybe the rise and fall of dynasties throughout China. And the black lines are different data put together by folks called paleoclimatologists, where they're digging out dirt from the ground or the bottom of the ocean or taking samples from trees to reconstruct what different patterns of climate have been in the past. And what they see historically over and over is that periods of major instability have occurred during periods of major climatic change. So a question we've asked is what happens today? In the modern world, are we immune to these types of events? And so to answer that question, we looked at the El Niño-La Niña Southern Oscillation. And so folks here in California all know what this does. Basically, it's a flip-flopping of what's happening in the Pacific. But it doesn't just make the snow in Tahoe great. It also leads to major changes around the world. So during an El Nino event, you have a lot of warming in the tropical Pacific, and then it heats up the atmosphere and propagates around the equator in something called an equatorial Kelvin wave, leading to heating and drying around the tropics that persists for several months, and then the event sort of fades away so what we did is we tried to map out the different people around the world who were getting hit by this large wave in the atmosphere, that were experiencing these large heating events. And when you map those countries against what was happening in the middle of the Pacific, and you can compare, for example, those northern and northern southern countries that are not getting hit by that wave, we actually see that sort of in- political instability, as measured by the probability that randomly selected countries in that tropical band have a civil war, we see that that increases as the world shifts to the hotter and drier El Nino state over there on your right. So much so that actually shifting from the cooler and wetter state to the hotter and drier state roughly doubles the global risk of civil conflict throughout the tropics. Whereas if you look in those places that were too far north and too far south to be hit by this wave, we see no change. And there are civil conflicts throughout those regions, but they're just not coupled to the global climate. Now this is just one analysis of a single data set. And what you see over here is that same sort of result I was just showing you, the green region is the the region of countries that are getting hit by that wave. But what we've then done is we've looked at a bunch of other studies by our various colleagues in the field, and we found that whether or not you're looking at individual countries in Africa, looking at regions within those countries, looking at individual pixels, or even going into a pixel and zooming in on individual villages, say, here in this study in Tanzania, we see over and over the same sort of relationship, whereas the climate shifts towards these more extreme ranges, sort of very high temperatures or extreme rainfall, we see rising rates of violence and social conflict within these communities. So this seems to be a very generalizable fact, and what has been really nice is that up until very recently, our government was actually listening to this type of research and incorporating it into how they were thinking about and designing uh, public policies going forward. Now, those things that I've just been showing you, they're pretty sort of dramatic, like conflicts and storms. But the thing that really keeps me awake at night are the really subtle changes that are very hard to notice and that are easily, easy to go by, uh, perhaps unnoticed. So these two results are, are graphs from my colleagues showing that the things that are the fundamental building blocks of our global economy, things like a corn plant here on the left or an individual worker on the right, as the temperatures go up, people tend to be okay, or plants tend to be okay up to a point, and then they start to decline fairly dramatically. Okay? So on very hot days, people work less, corn grows less effectively. And what happens if you think about these sort of building blocks of the economy all declining in productivity at higher temperatures, when we add them up and think about what the larger economy does as a whole, it ought to mirror this type of behavior. And when we look at the data, whether we look globally here on the left or at just counties in the United States on the right, we see exactly that kind of pattern, where as we shift towards higher temperatures, economic productivity declines, and that leads to sort of less assets, to less wealth for our children and for ourselves in, the, in future periods. Now, one of the keys here is that actually if you're too cold, if you're a really, really cold place, warming up is actually kind of good because you're going up this hill for a period of time. But then once you cross the peak of the hill, then you start declining. So too much warming is bad, and what matters a lot is where you start out on this curve on the left. So we've taken that curve and looked around the world and done simulations of what the future world might look like. And so what you see on the top is the change in economic growth simulated from climate models about traveling along business as usual trajectories. And you see the places around the world that are hot today, they're on the downside of that hill. So they're being harmed by additional warming. Whereas places that are very far north, they're pretty cold. So a little bit of warming is good. So they actually benefit from climate change. And so in these sort of economic trajectories down here on the bottom, you see that places that are cold, like Europe, they might benefit, but places throughout the tropics, for example, and, and the subtropics, places like South Asia, they decline quite dramatically. And so what that means sort of for the world as a whole is several different things. First, the global economy on average is expected to be substantially poorer in a world that warms significantly. But you can see there's a lot of uncertainty, it's possible that a variety of things might happen. So climate change actually increases the amount of uncertainty about what might happen in the future. And as I was showing you before, the tropics, those places that are very hot, those also are places that tend to be very poor already today. And so what we see is that roughly the poorest 60% of the world bears the brunt of the cost of climate change, whereas the sort of the wealthiest 40% of the world suffers substantially less. So this increases global inequality. So all of this work, sort of together, helps us paint a picture for what people for what the future might look like. So we can sort of see in more detail and, and see more vividly uh, what the world might look like. For example, here on the left, the colors indicate sort of temperatures in a world under business as usual versus one where we have strong mitigation, and the night lights of the human activity underneath have been rescaled to illustrate the trajectory in that simulation I just showed you. You can look at these and ask, well, you might look at the one on the left and think this looks quite scary and that we should all be really pessimistic and go hide under a rock, but I would tell you that you should not be so pessimistic. You should be quite optimistic, actually. This is the first time in human history where we had the types of tools available to us so we can look ahead and see what's happening in front of us and have an open dialogue and an intelligent discussion. In the past, decision makers were depending on you know, like looking at the stars or rolling the dice to try and sort of see ahead. Now we have data and computing that allow us to do this in a way that we can have a discussion and consider what is the world we want to live in uh, for uh, for ourselves and, and to give to our children in the future. Thanks a lot.
2: I'm going to move the discussion. Saul was talking a lot about damages, and he's been doing tremendous work uh, with his colleagues and others in the field thinking about you know what the costs of climate change are. So I'm going to move it over to think about the policy response. So how do we design policies to respond to this daunting challenge? There's a bunch of people doing this important work to really understand how these climate change damages are manifesting. And there's an associated effort to try and aggregate or integrate all that work and estimate the cost, the damage done by a ton of greenhouse gas emissions? And all the questions that were raised about uncertainty, all that stuff notwithstanding, can we start to zero in on what a cost of a ton of carbon is? Um, And there's lots of uncertainty, so that graph begins to show you over there that sort of the range of estimates, but if you sort of squint at that picture, the central estimate is about $45. And we can argue about whether that's too high or too low, but zeroing in on what we think that number approximately is is really important for a bunch of reasons, and one is informing policy, right? So what do we we think about that number? A monetized estimate of what the damage done by a ton of carbon helps us start to think about what we're willing to pay to avoid that damage, right? Um, And even though all of us here, your being here suggests you're concerned like I am about climate change, and we may, in our sort of emotional state, think that we should, there's, we should be paying infinite amounts to solve this problem. That's not actually true, right? There's an opportunity cost every dollar we spend on climate change that could be spent on other good things like public education. Um, so it's important to think about identifying the most cost-effective ways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions um, and working to design policies to incentivize um, those relatively low-cost approaches And truth be told, there are going to be some mitigation options that aren't worth doing right now. The benefits in terms of avoided damages just don't justify um, the upfront costs at this moment. Um, So one of the powerful ways that economists get excited about to try and coordinate all the investments and all the policy or the possible actions we could be taking to reduce greenhouse gas emissions Uh, is to get the prices right, is sort of a cute saying. But basically, try and reflect the damages done by those greenhouse gas emissions in the prices you face. You, the consumer in Best Buy, trying to decide whether you want to pay a little bit more for a more efficient refrigerator, you, the firm, trying to make investments in production equipment and trying to understand should you pay a little bit more for more energy efficiency, those kinds of decisions, if we can internalize the externality, more jargon, or put differently, help you to see the true cost of energy consumption or carbon emissions when you're making your decisions. That's a very powerful way to try and find the least cost options and deploy them quickly. Um, So I'm going to be focusing on cost effectiveness and economic efficiency, but, of course, another concern that should be paramount, and we're going to be talking about it a a little bit later, is equity and the distributional implications of the policies we pass. One thing I want you to keep in your mind is that, at least in principle, we can start to separate Economic efficiency concerns with distributional concerns in the following way. If we're taxing carbon, if we're selling permits, and we're collecting revenues, we can redistribute those revenues to mitigate the impacts of higher costs on low income communities, disadvantaged communities, or stakeholders that are paying disproportionate sizes of the costs. But we'll come back and talk a lot more about that important issue in a minute. So this idea that we can price carbon and send that signal out to the millions and millions of consumption decisions and investment decisions and trade-offs are being made is a powerful one. It's catching on, but slower than many of us would like. So what this graph is showing you is an estimate of the share of the global emissions – um, that are currently subject to some form of carbon pricing, be it a tax or a cap-and-trade program. And you can see it's been rising. Um, we're, we're coming up to 15%. If the chi- proposed China program comes online, we're going to be past 20%. But a different way to look at that, sort of glass half-full, half-empty, is that the majority of, of the sources that are contributing to the climate change problem are not subject to a carbon price right now. And many aren't subject to a regulation, carbon regulation at all. Um, California. This graph also helps put California. We tend to think we're the center of the universe. In some senses, we are, uh, but we're a small contributing contribution to the total greenhouse gas emissions. Right. So we're about one percent or less. Our the states' emissions are about one percent or less of global climate or greenhouse gas emissions. It's been estimated. This graph shows you the state has passed some fairly ambitious greenhouse gas reduction targets. You may remember back in 2006 when Governor Schwarzenegger at the time signed AB32, and that codified or set in motion a set of policies to help us bring uh, 2020 emissions down to 1990 levels. So the little black dashed line is showing you actual emissions. The blue line is sort of a best estimate of what emissions would do absent any new policies, that 2020 target, you can see we are on track to meet that target, and we'll talk a little bit about how we got that, got on that track. But you can also see that that 2030 goal, which is now sort of in, in regulation and in, in, in law, is a fairly aggressive step below that 2020 target, and there's a more aspirational goal, the 2050 target, which is even more ambitious. So you might be thinking, we're 1% or less of the global greenhouse gas emissions, we could shut down the state, frankly, and make a dent in global greenhouse gas emissions, but not a particularly big one. So why are we working so hard to reduce our emissions when we're a tiny part of the problem? And I think the reason has to be uh, is that California is on the front lines of climate change. We've got miles of coastline, we've got water issues, we have forest fires, all sorts of costs that are going to be exacerbated by climate change. And we can't sit back and let the federal government take the lead because we all know We'll be waiting a long time. So if global coordination to solve the climate change problem is going to happen, it's going to take leadership, and California is stepping into the lead. But I think what's important to keep in mind, at least what I keep in my mind, is what that means is that when we pass these policies, our real goal or important goal has to be demonstrating leadership and demonstrating solutions that other jurisdictions might be tempted or encouraged to follow. Right? And I think that that has implications for the policies we design and implement. Okay, so in my remaining time, I want to talk about sort of how California is meeting the greenhouse gas emissions or targets that we've set and how we're proposing to meet the next one, which is quite ambitious. And in some sense, it's kind of daunting to think that we're, you know, this tiny part of this big problem and there's a whole, you know, only a small subset of sources that are contributing to the problem. We're actually subject to regulation. The jargon for that is incomplete regulation that creates real challenges for policies in the jurisdictions that have decided to take action and take leadership, but it also takes opportunities. So like Saul, i try and strike a positive hopeful note at the end to talk a little bit about what those opportunities are, but I think Ned will, will um, take, that, take much more time on that. Okay, so how are we achieving our emissions reduction targets? California has a greenhouse gas emissions trading program that covers approximately 85% of the state's greenhouse gas emissions. You've probably heard about the greenhouse gas emissions trading program. Cap and Trade has been making the news, especially lately. It gets a lot of attention, but one sort of fact that I think is less appreciated is it's actually delivering a fairly small share of the abatement that we're achieving, right? So that little pink bar is the Cap and Trade program, all the other bars are more prescriptive. They're called complementary measures in California. They're mandates. So instead of relying on a current price to draw in investments and draw in abatement, regulators are putting in, mandating specific abatement and investment options, things like the renewable portfolio standard, um, uh, the, rene- the low-carbon fuel standard, energy efficiency standards. Right. So policymakers are basically choosing the abatement options that they think we should be pursuing and mandating that they, that they occur. Um, And that trend or that um, practice is scheduled to continue, so what I'm showing you now is another illegible figure with another rainbow bar, and this is the forecast of where the future, remember that 2030 target is more aggressive, we're now sort of charting a blueprint, how are we going to get there? And the projections are that, again, the the cap-and-trade is that little, like, dash line bar contributing a fairly small share. You can think of the cap-and-trade program like a belt, right? It's going to make sure that we meet that target, but we're pushing in a bunch of other mandates to try and get us to the target, and then the cap-and-trade program makes up the difference, right? It It delivers the emissions reductions we don't achieve with these more prescriptive targets. As an economist, I'm going to take this opportunity, I'm going to do it in cartoons, but I'm going to make a very short plug for why I think we should be relying a little more on market-based incentives and a price signal. So here's my cartoon graph for Saturday morning. This is a textbook abatement cost curve. So every bar, think of these as different things we could be doing to reduce, reduce greenhouse gas emissions. It could be energy efficiency retrofits, it could be more renewable energy. Some are low cost, so the height of the bar is showing you in cartoon uh, speak, how expensive it is to, for a different for various options. So let's say the blue bar is low hanging fruit, efficiency retrofits in the industrial sector, ten dollars a ton, but you've got much more expensive options like decarbonizing the the, the um, transportation sector. So if we relied totally on a cap and trade program, we would demand a certain amount of abatement. In my cartoon, it's 50 units. And we'd start raising the price until the price got high enough to draw in enough abatement to hit that target, right? And it would deploy the least cost options first. That's not what we're doing in California. And there are reasons to mandate certain solutions or investments, right? There may be other reasons why we really want to support decarbonized transportation, So what we're doing is we're saying, and there's lots of research to show that some of these mandates are quite relatively costly investments or options. So we're pushing in the more costly options for some reasons that are good and some reasons maybe not so good. And then the permit market is left to pull in what we need to meet that target. So you can see the current price is much lower, and it's only responsible for pulling in a little bit of the least cost options to get us all the way there. The point I want to make with this graph is that our current approach a reliance on more prescriptive mandates there's reasons to do that, but it can significantly increase the cost of meeting our emissions reduction targets. So as policymakers and as a state, we deliberate how are we going to get from here to there, thinking about those mandatory policies. Um, they come at a price, and we should be trading off the cost, the additional cost it's going to require for us to use these types of, of uh, actions to meet our target versus the benefits they confer. In my last few minutes, um, I want to talk about a little bit about the challenges and the opportunities um, associated with Getting out ahead um, and passing carbon regulations when a majority of the emissions um, are unregulated across the globe. So this gra- this map is just a different version of that graph I showed you, which shows you that a, sh- a, s- a small share, less than 20% of global emissions are currently under carbon pricing, a tax or a cap-and-trade program. Why does that keep a California policymaker up at night? If we pass prescriptive standards or we pass a carbon price, that increases the operating the cost of doing business in California. So think about a cement manufacturer in California. The mandates and the permit price is increasing the cost of that cement manufacturer relative to his unregulated rival right there in Nevada or over there in China or down there in Mexico or wherever that firm is competing, wherever the rival is located, right? So what we run the risk of is as we increase the operating costs in California, that firm loses its ability to compete with its rivals in less regulated jurisdictions, and that firm can lose market share and emissions, right? So the the jargon is emissions leakage, but we can perversely pass regulation in here in California that leads to a leakage of emissions outside of California. The good news is that California is thinking very seriously about this problem, which is a problem for any jurisdiction contemplating policy in this kind of landscape and designing policies to strike a balance between reducing emissions in California and mitigating leakage outside of California. I don't have time to go into it. I'm happy to answer questions. But I think the point is California is trying to demonstrate policy solutions to some of the really formidable policy challenges that any jurisdiction faces. So that leads me to my final point, which is the opportunity... We are getting out ahead. We are in a minority of jurisdictions that's passing climate policy and demonstrating um, policy solutions. And so I think that um, if we want to make a dent in the problem, we need to demonstrate solutions that other jurisdictions can follow. So in my mind, that means really trying to find cost-effective abatement options so we can demonstrate um, lower-cost or relatively low-cost solutions, delivering real reductions in California, trying to mitigate the leakage of emissions to other jurisdictions, and mitigating economic impacts on disadvantaged communities. If we can demonstrate these three principles, um, I think the case for climate change action gets easier to make um, across a broader base of regions and jurisdictions. And so with that, I'll close and um, turn it over to Ned.
0: Question, My job is to take you through a bigger picture in terms of the international context, uh, looking at the EU and China, and then looking uh, specifically at what the Trump administration has done so far and what it means, and then writing back to where um, Meredith just left off in terms of California. So that's where I'm going to take you. So first off, here's, here's a look at uh, emissions before Paris, before the Paris Agreement. And you can see the red lines shooting up to the right is, of course, China. You see about 2003 emissions really took off. I'm going to talk about China a little bit later, but key thing, they're going to peak. They're going to flatten that line and start going down, which is obviously if they didn't, we're done for line at the bottom here, the little, the little green one, is India. And you can see they're ramping up not nearly as fast as China, but definitely ramping up. And they're 94 percent coal-fired. So we've got a real issue in terms of getting India under control. The line, the one higher, the sort of, I'm a bit colorblind, so I'm not sure what color is it's sort of gray, uh, is the EU. And you can see uh, EU numbers going down. It's the second one. One of the top is the U.S. And you see U.S., was sort of flat for a long time, and then the Obama administration is only through 2012. You can see we started to see some good turn down, and we're a little better in the last several years. So good direction in terms of the U.S. and EU is the other light-colored line, and again declining. So you get a sense of where we were, and obviously developing countries key key piece of this, and that's what makes this treaty so important because it's the first time we have a treaty where everybody's on board. 190 countries signed. It's already been ratified. It's in place as of November November 2016, and you can be sure they moved as fast as they could given what happened in our election. Uh, And you can see 143 ratifications so far. Nine of the ten biggest countries are in. Guess who isn't? Russia. (laughs) Not too surprising, okay? But otherwise, everybody's in, and we're going to see this kicking in in 2020, and it's a strong uh, built-to-last kind of treaty. So it includes... Universal, as I say, all the countries are in. We've never had that before, so very important. And I think the key here is that this process forced presidents and prime ministers, and even the smallest countries, to focus in and think about what should we be doing in Tanzania, what should we be doing in Chile, et cetera. And when they came to this treaty, they basically, the bottom line here, the 190 nationally determined contributions, everybody has a target. Now, some will say, well, there's no penalties for not meeting it. The international process, it's all about what we call name and shame, all right? So you said you'd do this, you didn't do this, lots of bad press, your environmental groups go after you, the public goes after you. So that's how this is enforced. So not as good as, you know, legally binding like we have in California or like we have nationally, but certainly uh, in, in the real world of, of uh, climate policy, what's important here is everybody's on board and people understand a lot of what Saul was talking about earlier in terms of what the implications are, particularly for that whole swath of developing countries in the equatorial tropical region. We're looking at it below two degrees. For those of you not familiar, two degrees is really the level at which we start to have really serious impacts. The bad news about the Paris Agreement, it's on a track for 2.7, that's a bit high. Uh, what that means, if we went three degrees increase, that would be 40 days above 90 degrees in San Francisco in 2040. So we're talking about a big change, okay? And so we're, we're on track. Everybody's on board. Everybody's playing. This is a good treaty, good, good package. Bullet here, $100 billion a year, commitment, firm commitment from developed countries, both public and private money, to go to developing countries to help them develop those programs that are needed to move, move the needle in terms of the... Uh, the the reductions we need in terms of these uh, nationally determined contributions they're putting forward. So good news there. Other thing to think about with this treaty, it had three levels. It had the national level, which is this, national governments making commitments. It had the private sector level. So in addition to them being part of this $100 billion, they also made a whole series of very important uh, commitments, trillion-dollar solar initiative across the world over the next 20 years. Bill Gates organized a $20 billion new technology initiative. Big commitments in terms of divestiture. So we're going to see 100 major corporations are going to have committed to divesting coal and fossil fuel investments over the next five, six years through the 2025 period, uh, accounting for about $3.4 trillion in assets. So again, enforcement of that, got to keep after them, got to make sure the lights shined on them, the kind of stuff Trump's doing doesn't help us any in that respect. But otherwise, we've, we've got a real strong commitment. We've got the insurance industry as an example. They've committed by 2020 to take $420 billion out of their portfolio investments. You know, insurance companies have lots of money to invest and not put it in anything on the fossil fuel front, basically looking at clean energy and those sorts of things. So we have got that level. And then the third level, which Governor Brown has been a big leader in, is this idea of subnational governments, cities, counties, states in different you know, the states of Brazil, all joining in, I will show you in a little while on the California thing how much that means. But basically, you're, you're, you're basically setting a treaty that's not just national governments, a whole other bunch of players who are making even stronger commitments. So a very important treaty, very important opportunity. In terms of where we are, uh, the EU has been, as I mentioned, a, a real leader in this. this you Think of uh, Meredith's uh, slide a little bit ago on the California thing. You see, the EU is headed on the same trajectory, uh, a little less steep, but still we're going to minus 40. They're already at minus 23. Their target was minus 20 by 2020. So they're on target for their existing target and in good shape in terms of their minus 40 target by 2030. Reason being, they've got Poland, they've got the Czech Republic, they've got Bulgaria, places with still inefficient industry, places with still a lot of coal. Biggest opportunity you got, you go from coal to natural gas, you're cutting emissions in half. Go to renewables, you've got them to zero. So very big opportunity in the electricity sector. So they've got more of that. Here in California, we've gotten rid of all the coal. We've still got some gas, but not that much. So our, our goal, as Meredith showed us, is much more about transport and other sectors than it really is about the electricity sector. So for EU, very aggressive plan. And most importantly, 2050, they for minus 80. That's what you need across the board from all the big developed countries. And they've got a plan. I mean, Meredith said, you know, in our case, California, it's aspirational. We really haven't started to think about how we get to minus 80. You use a lot more analytic work and a lot more effort to really zero in on how we get there. It's still quite challenging, no question about that. But that's where we need to go. So it gives you a sense of the picture and where we're going. Uh, this is a look at the EU strategy in terms of uh, both 2020 and 2050. I just point to you that uh, in terms of their impact, here we're out at a 2030, the, 20, the, the minus 40 target. We're still going to have a fair amount of coal and, and fossil fuel in the electric sector, okay? And in transport, we're not making as big a dent as we hope to make in California, okay? So those are important. Get out here at 2050, and obviously we're down to zero carbon. We're getting all the coal in the EU uh, mix, and we're... Good pretty well on the cars. Again, they are a little less bullish on electric vehicles than we are here in California, and part of that's because you know electric cars depend on what fuel you use to produce the electricity. And here we're not using coal. In, in Europe, obviously, they are. Today, doing electric cars in Poland is a terrible idea because it's 80% coal, so it's actually higher emissions than it would be if you're burning gasoline. So we have a little different strategy for the EU than we do for California reflecting the realities of that situation. But again, very encouraging in where they're headed and the fact that they've been able to hold 28 nations together uh, and they have to negotiate each time who takes how much of a target. And I can show you the targets for countries. You know, the Bulgarians and the Poland's have easy targets. The Swedens and the Denmarks have 90% targets. So that's, and they've agreed to that. That's the way it's been broken up in terms of the equity. Let me turn to China now for a minute. China, as you know, for many years was the problem. Many years, we were trying to get them to do something. They'd talk, but they'd, they were recalcitrant. They dragged their feet in the negotiations. And I give a lot of credit to Obama, but also to the leadership of China and to the advent of terrible air pollution problems, which made them start to focus on this. They knew they had to do something about air pollution, and it comes along for the ride here in case because of so much of it is coal uh, to, to get CO2 reduction. So they've changed their tune. At Paris, they were incredibly positive for us. They were there at every point in the negotiations, pushing developing countries to come on board. You can't imagine what a difference that makes. And I think the the key here is what have they done on the the actual facts at home? They're, as I said, likely to reach uh, stabilization or basically peaking of their emissions by 2025. They promised 2030. They're doing better than that. They've cut their coal use now at 60 percent, still a big number, but they've cut it to below 60% last year, to 58%. Quite a move. They've shuttered a whole series of old steel plants, incredibly inefficient. Shut down a whole bunch of coal plants and old, old facilities. They even have video showing these plants being blown up. It's great stuff. If you want to watch on YouTube. But uh, basically to make the case that they're really getting this job done, and they're going big time toward renewables. So they'll be at 20%. That's not as good as us. California's California. going to be 50% by 2030. But considering where they are, it's quite impressive, and in terms of investment, they're number one in the world in renewable investment. 103 billion last year, an additional 32 billion in other countries, where of course they're promoting solar because they're making the least cost uh, panels and so on. Uh, so they're they're very active there. Uh, it'd be interesting. Who do you think is number two in last year's renewable investment? California, 63 billion in California. we better than anybody else other than China. Uh, so, again, good sign here. Uh, Meredith talked about the cap-and-trade. China will put a countrywide cap cap-and-trade system. They're doing it on a state basis, a province basis so far. They're going to do a full-scale cap-and-trade program next year, uh, and they'll link up potentially with the EU, and uh, depending on how things go, but someday, someday potentially with California as well. So the good news here... Very aggressive, and they've been aggressive with Trump. I mean, uh, when he made his announcements on March 29th, they blasted him. said, brazen disregard for responsibility for the the future of the the planet. You know, just very tough language. Uh, Now, Xi Jinping didn't say that last week. He had other things he had to deal with. But, you know, in terms of the basic thrust of this, very promising. And so you've got the two biggest players in terms of emissions beyond us, uh, you know, EU and China, very committed. And India, similar kind of thing, not as aggressive, not as public as China, but again, on board. We always had, in the treaties, we were always trying to isolate India, because if China went along, then India couldn't stand to be by itself. And now China's really on board, and so India is talking the same game. A little less in terms of the implementation, but still quite promising. We're hopeful there. Okay, U.S. context. This is what you've been hearing about the most, and uh, it's been depressing. I'm sure you felt the same way I have, listening to this stuff. Uh, we had a, a good target, tough target, 26 to 28% below 2005, set up by the Obama administration. It was going to be hard to get there, but we were going to get there, I think. There were a number of good plans in place to get there. Uh, the Trump administration has tried to dismantle this. First piece is they've announced they want to take apart the Clean Power Plan. Not so easy to do. There will be some real legal challenges. But what's troublesome here is, of course, Clean Power Plan is about requirements for states to come up with plans to reduce emissions from the electricity sector. No problem here in California, no problem in New York, no problem in Maryland, but you've got the Alabamas and the West Virginias and the Wyomings, who are going to welcome this news that they don't have to do this, and so they will drop off of here. What's important, though, and I'll show you in the next slide, is the markets are pushing you away from coal anyway. So we'll, we'll actually not see as much loss as you might think from hearing the press coverage of what's happening with this uh, clean power plant. Second one, very important for us in California, they've suggested they want to reopen review of the tough car standards that are identical here in California and nationally, including electric vehicle kinds of standards. Uh, For vehicle after 2021, so the model year 2022 through model year 2025, uh, they're reopening the review, and some would say, well, what's that mean for us in California? I'll explain that in a minute. There's some good news there on that front. They've also talked about withdrawing regulations that would require monitoring of methane, a very high global warming gas that comes from natural gas and landfills and and so on, uh, from uh, oil drilling and, and that kind of thing. They want to weaken those standards. They've uh, made it clear they're letting those two pipelines go forward. They've proposed changes to the mountaintop removal mining regulations that were adopted just before the end of the Obama administration. So some bad news there. And, of course, they've been talking about withdrawing from Paris. My sense now from talking to people is that they're more likely to stay in but weaken the plan, which is no, no, no good thing there. Um, so let's look now for a second at what's the silver lining here in terms of where we are. First off prices for natural gas and renewables in most utility markets around the country are much lower than coal. So, And you've seen, if you watch the press coverage, Major, the president of American Electric Power, the biggest coal-fired utility in the country, said, we're not changing anything. We're not going back to coal. Are you kidding me? It's cheaper to do gas, cheaper to do renewables. That's where we're headed. And that's what we've heard across the board. So even though they're weakening the plan and Wyoming won't have to have a plan, the fact is, even in Wyoming, you know, wind is quite competitive. So, and, and you know, they're even thinking about shutting down some of their mind mouth plants earlier than they planned because wind is so competitive and gas is, of course, quite available and cheap in Wyoming as well. So that picture is very promising. And, and if you look at our plan, the bulk of the emission reductions were to come from this CPP, from this electricity sector. So good news is won't be as good as we would have had, but... In terms of overall, it's in the next four years, certainly we're, we're still going to see the reductions that we were hoping for to a large, large extent. On the car front, uh, what's interesting here is California, under the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments, has the right to set its own more stringent standards for vehicles. They're the only state in the country to have that authority. Henry Waxman, you can thank for that in the 1990 amendments. And that law, that is in place. California already received the waiver under the law for the standards we have through 2025. So it's not like we have to go and ask for a waiver. We've got status to continue the plans we have. So for our market, we can continue to meet the 2025. Now, Pruitt's made noises that he might try to pull back the waiver. That's never been done, not to say they won't try. Uh, Lawyers say they have a really tough time. You've done all these scientific findings, all this other stuff, so that it's a very difficult task. But may well try it. Obviously, the auto companies wanted this, and and they'll get, uh, ostensibly they'll get their piece of the market. The other piece to remember is other states can opt into the California plan. So if I'm sitting in Maryland, I can pass a law saying I will follow California's car standards rather than the national standards. At the moment, the two are the same, so it doesn't matter. But there are 13 states currently that follow California's standards. So even if they are successful in rolling back the model year numbers for the rest of the country, we've still got 40% of the new car market is in those 13 states plus the District of Columbia and California. So, yes, we'll see an impact, but not a very big impact in the near term. Remember, this is model year 2022 to 2025. California standards run to 2025. So really, uh, and if you look at the numbers, the amount we get from the cars piece of this is a small amount. You know, the big number is the utility sector number. So, again, bad news. Troublesome, very bad messaging hurts us in terms of our overall vision and in terms of the international global market. But in terms of the facts, we're in, we're in pretty good shape in California, and I think we can hang in there. Uh, the question will be if, if we want to go forward in the 2026 to 2030 time frame, because there's no national standard yet set for that. The Obama administration hadn't done it. California could do it, but of course I have to ask for a waiver. And but hopefully by that time we have a change in. In leadership, let's hope. So bottom line here, in the next four years, near term, this is not a big impact. It's, it's not good, and we want to organize around it, and this is not to say, oh, go home and feel good about climate change. Not at all. We know we've got to do more. We know the Paris Agreement only gets us half of where we need to go by 2030. So there's no relaxation I'm proposing. I'm just saying don't be quite as depressed. There is a silver lining. There's some things here, and there's a number of people with a lot of effort to, to file suit and, and fight this on through. The thing I see as the biggest near-term impact is the bully pulpit impact. This de- Developing countries on the margin is not going to affect China, it may, it may affect India a little bit, uh, but a lot of the smaller countries are going to go, well, do we really need to do this? And Are they really going to give us the money? Because remember, for a lot of developing countries, climate change is not the main event. It's the co-benefits. When, you, when I do climate change changes, I get sustainable development, I get health benefits, re- reduced air pollution and so on. I get uh, better quality of life, et cetera. So there's a whole bunch of things that ride along with this. And the work I did in these Latin American countries, they said to me, Ned, it's about do programs that show those benefits, because that's how we get reelected, that's how we keep this thing going. Climate change is great. I'm the minister of environment. I believe in this stuff. But don't make that the lead. Make the lead these other pieces, and you can really make it go. And I think that's the key here. the money that helps us build those initiatives gets the private sector incentivized to do the renewables, to do the new technology and waste and so on, is really key. And we're going to lose the U.S. piece of this. Now, the EU's already stepped up. They said, we'll put $17 billion into this $100 billion a year ourselves. That doesn't quite offset all the U.S. effort, but it's a good piece. So that, again, promising signs. China has set up a huge infrastructure bank to fund developing countries to do things that obviously benefit Chinese industry, but also are positive from a climate perspective. So what more can you ask? So this is, so some good things here. We aren't hearing this, and I had a meeting, a, a session last week with the EU lead negotiator. He said a little of this, but he said, you know, we're going slow, but we want to see what Trump – we don't know what – Trump's too unpredictable. We're not sure, but – we're going to come out guns blazing by the end of the year if this continues. We're, we're, we're doing our stuff. We're continuing to push on this stuff. But for the moment, there's lots of other reasons we're taking it easy, but we're going we're gonna to be there and step up. So some good sides there. Okay, let me stop on that. California now, Meredith covered this nicely, uh, so I'll jump right to the one other piece she didn't talk about. And in addition to the good things that the governor's doing here and the state is doing, he's also got something called the Under-Two Coalition, and this is a, a group of uh, started by California and the, and the governor of Baden-Württemberg. And it's designed to bring in all these cities, counties, states, other players, NGOs, and so on, with real commitments for climate change and things that they will measure and they will report on. So this is – because this is all about local stuff. You know, it's all about the Port of Oakland. It's all about, you know, when you say, what do, I, what do I need to do about climate change? There's all these things we need to do right here at home that add up to the overall program. So this is a very important initiative and and one that's – he's now got – Sweden joined last week, so there's 34 countries in this. And he's planning a major initiative next year, uh, toward the end of his term, September, bringing everybody together to San Francisco. It will be linked to the 2018 stock-taking that's done internationally. So it will be a huge event with all these countries and all these subnationals here in San Francisco, again, designed to call attention to the fact that there's a lot going on in the rest of the world, and, and the rest of the world is really committed to this. Uh, even if our national administration is not. Okay, let me get Carol up here and uh, welcome her to talk about uh, the equity issue.
3: It's been interesting for me to hear the presentations so far because they bring up a lot of issues and they really set the stage for mine and set the stage for some of the trade-offs and tensions. I'm going to talk about equity. Um, um, Meredith talked about efficiency and... They don't quite always mesh, but they, but when but they do mesh in funny ways and unexpected ways. In other words, sometimes things are cheaper and, and have a better impact on equity. So it's not really a, um, a as much of a contradiction as one might think. So what I'm supposed to talk about is really how do we build. A political consensus and a social contract for this transition um, to a low-carbon economy, and just that—what that means is not leaving certain groups behind and not having uh, certain groups pay a, a disproportionate cost of the change or not get into, not benefit from the positive aspects of the change. This graph has been shown in more in one or another form um, by both Ned and Meredith, so that makes me happy because I don't have to explain it. But the point here is that there's different ways to get to a low-carbon economy, and they affect different sectors of the economy. Obviously, the energy sector, um, also industry, also it turns out the construction uh, sector is really, really key here because we're rebuilding our energy infrastructure and that means building stuff, and that's the construction industry. Um, And in a way, it looks like, well, these are technical solutions, and they won't have any impact on equity. Um, But they do affect industries, and therefore they affect jobs, and those industries are in particular communities, and uh, so particular (coughs) communities are disproportionately affected And the two constituencies, organized constituencies in California that really um, speak for equity politically are the community-based groups dealing with environmental racism, often called environmental justice organizations, and labor unions who are speaking to worker rights. Um, And I think both these groups feel that if you're not at the table, you're on the menu, that's a very common labor um, saying, but I think it applies to both because, in fact, in, inequality is baked into our system, both our economy and, and our political system. And so, having a voice in shaping um, how climate policy is implemented, and you know, the, the the details, the devil's in the details, so much here. Um, so. We've been working with both the EJ, environmental justice community, and labor in California trying to um, find common ground because they don't always align and articulate what the main issues are. And so um, there's different ways to divide this up, but but clearly the three areas are environmental justice, economic equity, and public accountability or voice and participation being at the table rather than on the menu. And the environmental justice community has had um, many wins, actually, many legislative victories. They have power in the state legislature. Um, Most of the victories have had to do with um, expanding access to benefits, um, partly through the cap-and-trade revenues, um, but also through different programs where there's uh, For example, solar rooftop, most of the subsidies at first went to wealthier people who owned homes and could afford it, same with electric vehicles. The EJ community has pulled those subsidies um, and restructured many of them so that they also benefit uh, low-income communities. Um, They've had the, probably, um, Ned may disagree with this, but in the climate arena, they're, they're they've had less success in dealing with local co-pollutants. Co- and certainly that's their biggest political concern right now. Like how, how do you, since they've been the community suffering most from environmental degradation over decades and decades, being near power plants and refineries and freeways, etc. how do you ensure direct emissions reduction? And that's what's in play in the capital probably as we speak. Um, but the interesting thing on the EJ side is their concerns are baked into the policy. You read the scoping plan, the implementation plan of the Air Resources Board and every other word is disadvantaged community and equity Um, so that there's a political recognition that low income communities of color, immigrant communities who've been hardest hit by environmental degradation have a a right to have this policy help them and definitely not hurt them. On the labor side, it's actually been much less uh, of a political recognition that labor's concerns are to be taken seriously. And so the principles that labor is pushing is that as our economy transitions, it's not just about net jobs. Are there more jobs in the clean energy economy than in the fossil fuel-based economy? We think there are. But net jobs doesn't really do the trick. It's also about job quality. Are the new jobs good jobs, good wages, middle-class jobs with career ladders as you get skills? Are your wages going to go up? Do you have health care? Do you have safe working conditions, etc. Um, and... This, Because of the importance of the construction industry, which is an industry that has a lot of really, really bad jobs and also some really, really good jobs with very good training through our state-certified apprenticeship um, system, we call out the the institutions and laws that help make those um, jobs good jobs through prevailing wage standards and the use of the apprenticeship system. Um, and then it's also about who gets the jobs. Are we opening up opportunities in um, in the clean energy economy in, for good jobs, not just a rooftop solar job that isn't going to go anywhere, um, to folks from the hardest-hit communities? And finally, of course, the transition issue, um, which has to do with a, a transition, um, the, the leakage issue, because... You can transition industries over time, or you can do it quickly, and sometimes when you do it quickly, all you're doing is exporting both the emissions and the jobs um, so how do we how do we make sure that when there's a decline in the petroleum industry um, is it a real decline, or is it just shipping the jobs out and then do we have? real transition assistance for workers and their families and their communities if dis- displacement occurs. And our experience with transition assistance with in other moments of history um, has shown that it, our policies have been meager enough that they haven't really at all made workers whole. We see big declines in... Um, income for workers who are displaced by all kinds of changes. And there are, interestingly enough, a few good examples of transition that have been much more positive, like the military base closures um, in the, when was that, in the 80s. Um, So there is um, an ability for us to incorporate policies um, that can bring along both communities that are in places that have been hardest hit and workers in sectors that either are growing and there's positive opportunity or are declining and we have to deal with that displacement. Um, and, and for like I said, for the EJ groups, they've had some big victories, For the labor groups, it's been very uneven with the good jobs created in the big utility scale renewables, and that's why you see the head of the state building and construction trades unions be at the signing when Governor Brown signed the 50% renewable portfolio standard, and that has allowed a building trades leader in California to, to be with Uh, to put real political capital into the SB 32, which is the targets for 2030. There's nothing about labor in there. There's could go either way, good or bad for unions and workers, but they committed to those targets because they have seen that they can envision a future in the clean energy economy. The reason they can is because, some of the sectors have, in fact, produced good union jobs. Not all. It's been uneven. But they've made the bet that they can have enough influence over the future to to protect their members and grow union jobs. This is in such dramatic contrast to our national building and construction trades unions who invited Trump to their convention um, and who are supporting Keystone and the... the Dakota Access Pipeline, et cetera. So when groups, when democratic organizations like unions who elect their leaders um, can see a future in the clean economy, they'll make the political scary but risky but political commitment to go with um, supporting uh, dramatic climate change policy. So just in conclusion, um, there are policies that can make this all work. Some of them may be more costly than the, the most efficient. It does mean really, really addressing the equity issues both on the job side and the community side and pulling in a strong coalition that will continue to pass climate policy and even probably more importantly keep the momentum up for implementation as we start you know, really uh, trying to reach our much more stringent targets. Okay.